The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. Welcome to The Exchange, a conversation with people of interest to business and finance around the world, hosted by me, Rob Cox, the global editor of Reuters Breaking Views in Zurich. A couple of weeks ago, my colleague Gina Chom in San Francisco and I chaired a discussion with three really savvy economic thinkers to assess the global monetary and fiscal responses to the lockdowns that most governments have imposed to stop the spread of the coronavirus. We convened on Zoom with Jason Furman checking in from Connecticut, Laurence Boone in Paris, and Kevin Warsh in Florida to chew over the way the Federal Reserve, Bank of England, ECB, and other central banks are pumping liquidity into the world's biggest economies. Our guests were uniquely positioned to offer insights into the matter. Laurence is the chief economist of the OECD and a former economic advisor to French President Francois Hollande. Jason Furman is the professor of the practice of economic policy at Harvard's Kennedy School and a former chair of the Council of Economic Advisors under President Obama. And Kevin Warsh finally was a governor at the Fed during the tumult of the global financial crisis 10 years ago, and he's now a visiting fellow in economics at Stanford's Hoover Institution. Their various backgrounds, and in the case in particular of Kevin and Jason, their differing political views, made for a fascinating conversation. Please take a listen. Good morning, bonjour, good afternoon, wherever you may be. Thanks for tuning in to this virtual Reuters newsmaker. It's the first one that uh, I've done, so bear with me. Uh, I'm Rob Cox, the global editor of Reuters Breaking Views. And like all of you, I'm coming to you from my home in Zurich, Switzerland. I'm joined by my colleague in Palo Alto, Gina Chong. Hello, Gina. Hi, everyone. How are you? Great, holding up. Good, good, good. Um, We have a fantastic panel here uh, to discuss, uh, well, the implications of the coronavirus on the global economy, markets, and beyond. These are people that Gina and I have known and spoken to during economic boom years, normal times, and more difficult circumstances like the global financial crisis, but none of that can compare to where we find the world economy today. So let me introduce them. Uh, Joining us uh, from Paris is Laurence Boone. Uh, Laurence is the chief economist of the OECD. How are you? Um, how is your lockdown in Paris, uh, Laurence? So the, the lockdown in Paris is, is fine. It's, it's a bit strange to see a very bright blue sky, lots of sun, and absolutely nobody in the streets. Uh, well, it would be a ni- it would be nice if it weren't for the right for these reasons. It would be a lovely time to stroll along the Seine, I'm sure. But um, yeah. Oh, so from Connecticut, we have Jason Furman, professor of the practice of economic policy at Harvard's Kennedy School and former chairman of Council of Economic Advisors under President Obama. Uh, Jason, how is my native uh, nutmeg state? It's uh, it's also I'm seeing a blue sky um, outside. I'm not seeing a lot of people. And you know, my my children are currently homeschooling themselves. At least I, I hope so. Um, <laughs> otherwise, you might see them. Good. Uh, lastly, from uh, Florida, we have Kevin Warsh. Kevin is a former governor of the Federal Reserve Board, who is now a visiting fellow in economics at Stanford's Hoover Institution. Kevin, how is uh, sunny Florida? I assume it's sunny, because why wouldn't it be? It's indeed sunny, uh, much like you heard reports from elsewhere. There's no one on the streets, and the governor has put us in shelter in place. So for most of us on this uh, video call, we can still do our work, however inefficiently, 
The same can't be said for uh, most Americans who aren't able to do their work as remotely as we. Yeah, no, it's very tough. Well, look, it's great to have all of you here. I know you're incredibly busy teaching classes, writing reports, consulting, and catching up on episodes of Tiger King on Netflix. Um, but so without further ado, I want to pass the first question to you, uh, to uh, Gina in Palo Alto. Thanks, Rob. Uh, so I guess we uh, wanted to start off with a broad question just about how you're seeing the world given the devastating speed with which we've seen the outbreak and its effects on um, public health and the global economy. Uh, in the United States, we got some pretty bad news today in terms of the weekly jobless claims hitting another record at 6.6 .6 million. So uh, Jason, I wanted to start off with you just in terms of your assessment of the economic damage so far and how bad do you think it could get? And uh, we'll go down to the others as well. But uh, Jason, if we could start off. If you yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the economic damage in the short run is massive. It was done on purpose by the government and done in my view for very good reason in order to control the spread of the virus, which needs to be done in order to ever have an economy um, in the future. Um, we knew the extent of it, but that doesn't, no matter how much you know, when you see a number like 6.6 .6 million people filing for unemployment insurance, um, you know, you, you're not prepared for something like that. The bigger question, which we don't know yet, is, you know, is this like a natural disaster and the economy springs back, or is it like a financial crisis and it takes a very prolonged period um, to get back? So right now, there's no ambiguity. Um, a year or two from now, I'm on the pessimistic side, but, you know, that's, that's the big question is, can you restart the economy? Not, you know, did the economy stop? We all can look outside and see that. We don't need the data. Yeah. And Kevin, how about you from, from your perspective, especially because you had been at the Fed uh, during the crisis and um, have seen a lot of bad times yourself. Um, how do you see the situation now? So um, I think Jason captured the moment pretty well. I mean, we've, we've spent most of our careers thinking and seeing both firsthand in government and on the outside what happens when governments put economies in recession, but that's usually by accident. This, as Jason says, is by choice. And so by that very means, it's a different kind of recession. Um, it looks as though that the government's attempts to shut down the US economy have been very successful, maybe more successful than some would have thought. Something like half of consumer spending by the time we get to end of this week will be gone. And, uh, and that's just, uh, that makes it the biggest shock that we've seen in a hundred years. And Laurels, how about you from your perspective in Europe in particular, where we've seen the economies of Italy and Spain and, and others um, really take a, a toll because of this? So you're, you're right, and it's pretty similar to what both Kevin and them and Jason have said, I think so now in Europe, most countries have been in lockdown for between uh, three weeks to one month and even like five weeks for Italy. Um, the initial shock to the economy of the lockdown, we've estimated that the OECD is 
between 25 to 35% on the level of GDP. And obviously the impact will be the tougher, the longer confinement uh, lasts for. Um, the conversation is a little different on two accounts. I think the first one is most European economies have put in place huge buffer on top of the very large automatic stabilizer. So, so they all have what's called short time working schemes. So people stay employed and the government contributes to their wage to a large extent. So this, so we don't observe as much of a, of a shoot in the unemployment uh, figures as what we see for the US, but it's very costly, obviously. Um, and, and the second thing on which it's, it's a little different, because confinement has been going on for a while, now the discussion is moving towards how do we get out of there? And how do we get out of there knowing that infection rates have been kept low by confinement? So there's no, uh, what we call herd immunity. Con for example, infection rates in Europe vary between 0.7 in Germany and up to 15% uh, in Spain. But that's, but that's the discussion we start having. Okay, that's um, a pretty grim scene setter. Uh, Rob, ne next question for you. Sure, sure. I mean, all of you have um, written op-eds and various pieces and blogs and, and uh, on, on, on what kind of response is required uh, to deal with this un unprecedented economic disruption. Um, are you, mostly encouraged by what the monetary policy responses that we've seen, whether it's uh, from the Federal Reserve or the ECB or other or the Bank of England and other central banks. And then it's a, is the first question, I suppose. But then the second to that is, have we had the right fiscal response as well? Um, we saw the $2.2 trillion stimulus in the United States. We've seen various European governments um, come up with different schemes. Um, so I'd just love to get your perspectives on what's been done and whether you're encouraged by what's been done or you think there's more that needs to be, un be done and maybe specifically you have some thoughts on that. I'll start with you, Kevin, because um, I know you've, you've written, uh, you wrote something that was quite um, interesting about how we could fund small businesses, for instance, through the Fed. Um, are you happy with where we are with the response? Right, so I'd say judging by the speed of action by the US Central Bank, the speed's been quite remarkable. They've moved faster than we moved uh, more than a decade ago, first using the uh, facilities that we had designed and put in place, and then quickly, I think, realizing that the nature of this crisis was fundamentally different than the nature of our crisis in 2008. So they've been rolling out products and facilities, including one that I'd written about a few weeks ago, which hasn't been fully rolled out, which they're calling a Main Street credit facility. And the idea is pretty simple. Um, we need to buy time to see what the future is of the virus and of the economy. The best way to do that in central banking is to roll out liquidity to all solvent comers, to all businesses that were in reasonably good shape before the crisis so that they can buy time before shutting down or doing things that are too radical. We haven't seen the details of the Fed's program, but I'm hopeful we'll see it over the course of this week. And among the things that Congress did that I thought was most productive was really providing the backstop funding that will go through Treasury that should allow the Federal Reserve to be a backstop. So in the event that there are any losses from these new liquidity lines, the fiscal authorities would pay for it, which is really inside their remit, not inside ours. So that's an encouraging note. I'd say on a somewhat surprising note from where I sit, 
the world's central banks have all moved interest rates effectively to zero. They've all gone back to their QE programs, but they've done that in a way which is correlated but not coordinated. I do tend to think that they would get more bang for their buck if they so could on Sunday nights taking these actions together. And one more piece I would add before turning it over to my colleagues here. Um, the nature of this crisis, Rob, is that this is the first crisis where the, the first war we've had where the enemy can't read. So I think the war plan should be put out there for everyone to see. The economic war plan should be described broadly. What are the goalposts? What are we trying to do? What are we not trying to do? And so I think it's time that the big policymakers emerge from what have been a brutal bunker scenario where they've acted with speed and I think some efficacy and tell their story of what they see happening. Obviously, there's tons of uncertainties, but I think citizens and businesses could use clarity even if they can't get certainty from them at this point. Lawrence, um, you, maybe you can give a perspective on what's happening, particularly in, in, the, in Europe. Um, and, and also maybe address a little bit Kevin's point about coordination. Um, one thing was one feature of the 2008 crisis certainly was, you know, we saw incredible cooperation between central banks um, and, and fiscal authorities. It does feel a little bit like everybody's jumping out on, on doing their own thing. Um, I'm just curious where, what, what you, where you stand on that. Um. So I, I largely agree with Kevin that there has been an amazing policy response, um, both on the monetary and the fiscal front. I think, you know, policymakers have have really leveraged on what they have learned from the financial crisis to be able to provide very forceful uh, answers. Um, they've also gone beyond what they had done in this episode, uh, whether the Fed with its unlimited QE or the scheme that Kevin was describing, uh, but there's also huge extension of swap lines, which are the best, um, uh, the best expression of coordination. I agree that apart from those... Um, coordination on many fronts. One is on obviously on managing the healthcare crisis. If anything, there's competition uh, for, for healthcare material, which is not a good idea. Um, but on, on the monetary side, um, we, we have seen individual action. One of the reason being the peculiar uh, the peculiar architecture that what well, that exists in the eurozone, where the central bank is not backed by one treasury but by many uh, treasuries. But to a large extent, I would say that they, they're leveraging on each other with key uh, and really acting forcefully. I think one of the reasons why financial markets have actually taken time to to react and are still very unsettled. Uh, is because there's so much uncertainty with the evolution of the virus and, and the way it is being addressed and how long it's going to last for. And I think that's where coordination should really uh, focus for that and for taking care of all that's happening outside of the G20 uh, where things are really bad. Right. And, and Jason, you um, you had a, 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 an op-ed where you called that made the case for a big coronavirus stimulus. Uh, what is, have you been satisfied with what you've seen? I mean, you wrote that about a month ago. I'm um, incredibly impressed by the speed of what's happened in the United States, the scale of what's happened in the United States and similar responses around the world. 
um, but the speed and scale of the assault on the economy um, may be even larger than what we've seen from policymakers. Um, just to put the US response in context, I did the first meeting with Congress on what became the Recovery Act on December 17th, 2008, right after President-elect President Obama had decided what he wanted to see in it. Two months later, he signed it into law and it was about $800 billion. That was during a financial crisis and that was an all democratic government, which is easier to get things done. This is divided government at a time of enormous acrimony and polarization. In eight days did something about twice as large as um, what we did a decade ago. And I think a lot of ideological preconceptions were set aside. You know, there were some Republicans out there saying we need supply side tax cuts, but the vast majority understood the problem right now isn't giving people an incentive to work, it's having people survive. There were some Democrats out there who thought this was a great opportunity to expand unionization and change election laws and do whatever else. Um, and you can argue for or against the merits of those ideas, um, but they have nothing to do with um, preventing an economic calamity over the coming months. And those ideas were set aside um, as well. So I think there has been, you know, so far, a greater degree of pragmatism, leaving your ideology aside, a greater degree of speed um, and scale than you know, what I would have um, expected. Round four in the United States is looking you know, right now a little bit more ideological. Um, Speaker Pelosi is talking about passing something Senator McConnell, um, the Republican leader of the Senate is saying, don't pass it. There's a lot of discussion of infrastructure, which I think is a perfectly wonderful thing to do, as long as it doesn't crowd out the things that are incredibly more urgent and more important um, than it, like continued assistance to low-income households, preventing state budget cutbacks from undermining some of what the federal government has done and then extending and expanding um, a lot of what was done, which was designed more for a two month lockdown, not what at the very least will be um, two years of you know, economic rebuilding um, that will be needed. So um, you know, the last thing I'd say is um, at least for the United States where we have divided government, um, the initial response is usually a little bit easier you understand you've been attacked, you can bring people together. There's this, we're in it together type of sense. Um, but then as the problems start to mount, people will look, you know, that person got something unfair. That business gave a raise to its CEO. I'm here hurting. And the resentments start to build. And um, that's what I'm worried about. Um, that's one of the reasons I've been encouraging as much as possible that legislation should have triggers in it. You, know, you such and such lasts and continues to happen until the unemployment rate falls below a certain threshold, until the health emergency is over, um, and some landmarks that you set out in advance, rather than trusting Congress to every two months pass some new law. Right, right. Interesting. Well, go ahead. I'm going to go to you, Gina. Oh, sorry, Lawrence, did you want to? Yeah, okay. if I can just jump in. So yeah, I, did, go on. 
At the OECD, we are tracking all the measures that um, OECD member states. So that's about the, say, for roughly 40th uh, richest country in the world have been, have put in, all these countries have put in place since the beginning of, of the crisis. And, and I would, um, I would really enhance what Jason has been saying. It's absolutely amazing the speed and the magnitude of what countries have been doing. They have been firing on all, all their tools. They're supporting uh, people losing their jobs. They're keeping people in jobs by paying them. They're providing tax deferral charges, deferrals uh, or tax cuts for all sectors affected. Um, they're postponing tax payment, mortgage payment. They've been asking banks. Um, Kevin was talking about the Fed to Main Street. Um, I would say in countries where banks are still uh, big intermediates, then they've they've been guaranteed by states to carry on providing lifelines to most firms and SMEs. Um, so so really, all the policy tools that that policymakers have in their hand, they've been using to a massive extent, uh, which is extremely good if we think that the shock is going to last two to three months. And, and I think we should all be very impressed by the responses that have been put in place so far in most countries. And Rob, can I, can I jump in as well? Yeah, go ahead, Kevin. So, so let me just build on uh, what Lawrence and uh, Jason said, see whether there's a distinction or a, uh, or agreement here among the panelists. So I'd say three things. First, I don't particularly like the language, at least in the US, of stimulus. You know, the government chose to shut down the economy with one hand. It strikes me as strange that the government's then trying to goose spending with the other hand. The language I think is more right and more consistent with what this bill was about the president signed is income support. This is a rich and generous nation. So the motivation was to try to provide some help to those that can't work remotely that have been sort of put in harm's way through no fault of their own. And I think the ideological fights, supply side, demand side fights will be back when we're talking truly about stimulus, how to get the economy going. So it's a distinction, but I think it's a distinction with a reasonably big difference my sense is that the way the US economy works is there's a complicated supply chain, and also a complicated demand chain. Part of the reason why I think the shock won't uh, just be over in a few months, even if the epidemic has peaked, is you've done more than throw sand in the gears of that and just replacing aggregate demand through government spending with the shortfall in demand strikes me as unlikely to be that positive. So that's one. Two, I would say, well, there does seem to be some comity in the fiscal support and the parties in the U.S. seem to be agreeing. In some sense, what they've done is they've passed many of the hard decisions to the Treasury Department, to the Federal Reserve. And I would imagine there's a long list of special interests knocking on the doors of each of them saying, please put me in that facility, let my paper be funded. So the fight is happening. It's just happening behind the curtain. And so we don't know how these policies will be executed. We don't know whether we'll be in the business of picking winners and losers, something which these other agencies, I think, are poorly situated to make those judgments about. And maybe a third point, um, just for my colleagues here to comment, uh, if, we're a if the economic policymakers in the US, like their peers around the world, 
could come out and through prepared text explain their diagnosis, the duration of what this mess is, what their tools are and why they'll work, then I think they'd get a big benefit of signaling. So it doesn't, you don't normally have to wait in crises for products to be launched in order to see whether they're working. You want a signaling effect to tell businesses and households where they might get some support and get markets to start working, to front run the facilities. And again, I think the next week should be filled with more messaging and signaling about those fundamental questions. Well, Jay Powell went on the Today program on NBC. I think it's the first time that we've seen the uh, Federal Reserve chairman go on network television like that. Would um, you almost you almost took that job, Kevin? Would you uh, would you be on um, would you be on NBC or the Today Show or how would you how would you communicate that? Well, uh, well, on days like this, I'm quite fortunate to be sitting comfortably with you guys in the back benches and not <laughs> not on the front lines. I'd, I'd say there's there's absolutely nothing wrong with communicating the American people. The economic leaders of our country need to do that. But that shouldn't be at the expense of communicating to businesses large and small, households large and small that are making big decisions about payroll and rent and the rest. So I would say it's okay to, to have that broad discussion, but there's a big gap between a fact sheet on a Sunday night and the Today Show. And I think that I'd be surprised, let me put it this way, if over the coming days, we don't see the economic officials telling their economic war plan much the same way in the U.S. we've heard in the last couple of weeks from the healthcare officials. Some people don't like what they're saying, but it's highly informative and lets people understand at least with clarity what the next several weeks, months, and quarters will look like. Jason, how do we avoid uh, a bit uh, a special interest sort of taking advantage of, of this so, or only those who have the right advisors, um, the right you know financial advisors, people who can help them to benefit from whether it's uh, the, uh, the Treasury or the Fed's programs. I mean, is, is it, because what we don't want to have is another situation where you have a backlash to the bailouts, as it were, and we have a, a financial, uh, or sorry, a political crisis that in some ways uh, follows the financial one. Yeah, I'm, I'm worried about that um, backlash that, you know, you saw the Tea Party last time. I hope a tiny bit, you know, people understand the industries that are being affected right now didn't cause this crisis. Maybe that will alleviate a little bit. Um, but as an economic matter, I'm very worried about over-designing programs. I saw during the financial crisis, we in our administration, and you saw some of this in the Bush administration too, would put in place a housing program that was exquisitely designed to minimize moral hazard, minimize eight other different concerns that people had and would have a take-up rate that was a fraction of what was expected and you know, what was needed. I think that the you know, oversight of TARP by a special investigator general that had a massive staff of people was probably inhibiting to banks taking on capital, um, making loans and the like. And so you know, I don't know how you explain this to people, but you know, just even understanding that the $500 billion for big business is not a grant program, it is a loan. Um, a lot of that loan will be repaid. I don't expect all of it to be repaid. And by the way, if all of it gets repaid, that probably is a sign that the Fed over-designed those programs um, and it left some social good on the table. But the fact that people still look back at TARP 
as a $700 billion gift to banks when it was an investment that repaid itself both directly in fiscal terms and in terms of the economy is, um, you know, to me, I think one of the biggest failures of any of us to explain. And that's a failure that we're living with now because if we put too many restrictions on buybacks and pay, and you know, the most important one is payroll. You know, I'd love to see no layoffs. There are industries that airplanes or you know, air travel is just not going to see as much air travel until there's a vaccine. There's probably gonna be a lot less air travel until there's a vaccine. There's probably gonna be less air travel after a vaccine. They're gonna to need to make certain types of adjustments and we need to facilitate um, those adjustments. So getting that balance between you know, getting the politics right, but also getting the economics right. And the economics, I think right now says, let's err on the side of more and faster, not you know, design everything so perfectly that you end up leaving out all sorts of businesses that really needed liquidity. Gina, over to you. Thanks. Uh, I wanted to follow up on um, some of the things mentioned here uh, with Laurence. Um, we were talking about the speed uh, at which governments and central banks have responded, um, but there's still obviously some stress in the system um, just because we don't have a vaccine yet. And at least here in the United States, the worst of um, the outbreak and, and expected cases really has yet to come in, in most states. Where do you see uh, the holes in policy, whether it's on um, a monetary or fiscal level in terms of what you think could, could still be done to ease um, you know, plumbing and financial markets or to uh, provide more liquidity or fiscal support to um, individuals, particularly the ones who are being the hardest hit by this. Um, so you're right that in spite of the size and magnitude, there, there's indeed has been, there is, and there will be some hole. And I, I, I agree uh, on two accounts, one with Kevin for implementation and efficacy of execution. Um, and there's all, you will hear a lot of stories about how complicated administrative processes may be uh, for firms who are still sponsoring jobs, uh, keeping people on and waiting for the governments to help them pay people. Um, but also, uh, I think I'm, I totally agree with Jason that it's better to you know, spread too much than too little at this juncture. I can think about two, two things. The first one is small and medium-sized firms uh, it's always difficult for them to be well-targeted. Um, and I think that's one of the strengths of going through the banking sector is they know the firms. And if states can guarantee uh, some of the loans or the debt that these this small and medium-sized firms have, um, if banks can actually provide um, the cash that they need to pay for their rent or mortgages or other fixed costs, then that, that will support them going through. And then you have huge categories of people, whether it's um, because they're um, on the informal job market, they don't, they don't have proper job, or because they, um, they're living with tips, for example, in restaurants, or they had um, just started a job and went probatory period, or they're on fixed-term contract. So, so for those people, 
um, additional targeted support, like in the form of a check, so some form of helicopter in a way, uh, would be um, very helpful. And then a third and last point is we have very much focused on advanced economies, um, but low-income countries, emerging markets uh, in Asia, Latin America, or Middle East and Africa, they don't at all have the same institutional structure um, for economic policies, and it's even worse for health policy. Um, you were mentioning coordination at the beginning of, of our talk, and I think there's a huge, huge effort uh, which is in the making to go there. And perhaps Kevin and Jason will have more to say about this, but um, there's a real issue about the size and the capacity of acting fast of the global financial safety net that we should also be, uh, I think, discussing and addressing. Great, and Kevin, uh for you, especially from the Fed's perspective, I feel like every day they're announcing, you know, something new. Just yesterday, they uh, talked about, you know, easing off for banks in terms of the supplementary leverage ratio to deal with uh, treasuries. Um, where do you see uh, any gaps um, that still might need to be filled or stress in the system that their actions so far has not addressed and if it's even possible to address them fully just given the unprecedented circumstance and that this is due to a public health issue as opposed to a, a financial issue right so i so i think they've been remarkably uh, effective plumbers over the course of the last couple of weeks and i mean that with the greatest admiration different parts of the market have broken down even the treasury market the most important risk-free asset market in the world has been gapping out and even with overwhelming purchases on a scale and magnitude that we didn't comprehend in 2008 or 9, we're still still seeing gaps in market functioning. So one way to deal with that as the Fed is to see a new group of assets that aren't covered by an existing program and say, okay, how do we cover that? But I think the, the discussion likely at Treasury and at the Fed has a bunch of owners of a bunch of so-called orphaned assets that don't qualify for any of these Fed programs that say, me too, include me in the program. And again, the Fed's going to have to decide whether or not they just keep expanding further the perimeter of, accept of acceptable collateral, move down the risk curve, or whether... Um, what they should be doing is describing in a broader sense what their objectives are and try to signal to markets to crowd in private capital with these various things. So at some point, I think you have to move from being a strong and effective plumber, which is the, an important job for the Fed, to being the general contractor and start to tell your owners really what's the state of the foundation. And I think many of us on this uh, video call have been a little bit uh, anxious to call the, the duration of this virus. I guess my instinct is that this thing is going to be longer in duration than many of us would hope and is likely to lead to scarring across the economy and markets. So the Fed is in this for the long haul with these other central banks. So the role of general contractor becomes that much more important. And Jason, what do you feel like is missing, if anything, on the fiscal front. I mean, you had talked about in your op-ed this um, idea of direct payments, which they have gone to, but, you know, it's even Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin said this is maybe going to last for 10 weeks. 
if that um, and Congress may have to come back as they're already discussing on on another plan. Um, is is that really uh, the ideal situation for a, a divided government to keep coming back and having to fill the coffers, if you will? And, and do you think there's a better way? Yeah, I think the biggest absence in the legislation was general fiscal support for states and localities. And just stepping back, understanding what's happening, there is an intense liquidity crunch across everything. Households are feeling it, small businesses are feeling it, large businesses are feeling it, and states and localities are feeling it as well. And the entities that can best borrow at this point in time are national governments, and they're effectively borrowing on behalf of subnational governments. This legislation in the United States did include money for states to fight the COVID emergency itself. It wasn't close to enough money for states like New York, which are particularly affected, because when we do things in the United States, we want to make sure all 50 states get something, regardless <laughs> of their population, regardless of how affected um, <laughs> they are. Um, but, but importantly, states are going to lose several hundred billion dollars of tax revenue this year. They don't just have to fight COVID, they have to pay teachers to teach students starting in September. They have to have police offices, they, officers, they need to have parks, they need the machinery government to operate. And you see states around the government preparing budget, around the country, preparing budgets now with 20% budget cuts. That would hurt the economy. Right now, I agree with Kevin, fiscal stimulus probably isn't the right word. But if you have states cutting their spending a year from now, that will chill the economic recovery. It'll hurt education and the like. So I think more unconditional assistance for states to me is the number one top priority. Okay. Second is right. we're just going to need to extend on what we've done. You know, longer unemployment insurance, more checks. If the small business program um, does work that funds their payroll through banks, then that will need potentially need more money. Um, I hope the 500 billion is enough for the Fed to use, but you know, if it starts to turn into a banking crisis and it's not anywhere close to that right now, but if it ever starts to, they'll probably need more resources for that um, as well. Okay. Rob, over to you. Yeah, I guess that I, I think that's right. We have there is this we have this duty of, of making sure that people, particularly the ones that Kevin mentioned, who unlike who are less fortunate than, than, than we are in the sort of information economy can work from our various homes. Uh, there is though that at some point we're gonna have to pay for all this. I'm just, you know, I, it would be worth maybe trying to think about how we're going to pay for this. Is this, is this going to just be higher taxes? Is it going to be, we're no longer gonna have a concern about G debt to GDP of 100%, but 200% the new, is the new 100%. Um, how, how is this all going to play out? Or are we just going to monetize it all and, um, and it won't matter? Um, I'd love to get your views on maybe it's premature because we have a real crisis in our hands. But at some point, we're going to have to, we're going to, have to pay the piper. How do we do that? Kevin, I'll start with you. Sure. So I think the first thing we do is treat the state of where we are as a liquidity shock, try to overwhelm the system with liquidity to avoid a solvency crisis. And that's true of businesses, households, governments, etc. Um, 
if this goes on for a long time, then in spite of our collective best, best efforts, the solvency crisis will be among us. You know, I don't think it requires too much of an imagination in the U.S. to say that in calendar year 2020, the deficit could be running something on the order of $4 trillion. Um, so the question of how to fund it um, is going to become apparent. And at certain brief moments in financial markets in the last several weeks, it seems as though for an hour or two, markets have had a bit of indigestion. The Fed's had to step in to try to keep the Treasury markets not just clearing, but clearing at yields they think are appropriate. History tells us when we get confronted by a shock like this, especially if it goes long in duration, that big central governments do one of three things. They try to inflate their way out of it, devalue their currencies or financial repression. And I would say if the virus has done anything, it's likely to have accelerated some of the rather disturbing trends, both in academia and among policymakers, uh, about some shortcuts to dealing with it, like having the central bank make these liabilities go away. I think it's dangerous, but we'd be fooling ourselves to not be concerned about the question you raise over the horizon. And even if the US is the biggest uh, economy in the world, the one with the deepest capital markets, doesn't internalize the cost of this increase in funding, this massive increase of treasury supply, I think in the next couple of years, we're likely to see these hard questions having to be resolved one way or another in some of the major economies around the world. So folks like uh, Lawrence and Jason and me, these are issues that we've got to start tackling with now and frankly batting, batting down some bad ideas that have been lingering on the fringes uh, for the last couple of years and might find their way into the mainstream. Lawrence, so I'm when I think of Europe, um, I mean, it's not one, it is not one borrower, right? And we have this this, this debate that's going raging right now in Europe about, um, about Corona bonds in particular, which would be the idea that um, you would have mutualization of debt. And so the European, the Eurozone could potentially issue, issue bonds that would then be used to help deal with the crisis across the Eurozone. Huge argument around this. Um, how do you see that playing out? And then just specifically, when we think about how to pay for it, how do you think longer term we pay the piper? So um, first, um, first in the short term, and I agree with what, what Kevin was saying, first in the short term, the European Central Bank has given space and time for Eurozone governments to actually start thinking hard uh, about it. And, and that's good. You know, there is this new pandemic program that the ECB has launched, which is really giving some breathing space uh, in terms of time and also in terms of allocation of the purchase across the country, which, as you know, is, is always a bit contentious. Um, now, as you know as well, there's a lot of discussion and not always nice between uh, European member states, European Monetary Union member states, about mutualization of debt. And I think there's a lot of them. Um, I think we should distinguish two things. One is, do you want to mutualize the spendings that will go with the coronavirus, which you know is something that no country begged for and nobody's responsible for? Uh, and for which there is complete symmetry in the in the way that it's uh, well not complete, but there is more symmetry in the way it's addressing con 
uh, these economies or do you want to mutualize all that? So I think for the time being, we're going to put aside um, the question of legacy debt, the one before the coronavirus. Looking ahead, um, if you think about the size of the deficits that are being put on the table, say between roughly 4 and 5% of GDP, if you add to this the tax deferral and the credit guarantee, and it's on average around 15% uh, of GDP in Europe, then you really see that the, uh, the increase in sovereign insurance is going to be massive. Um, so I don't think one tool will, will, will be enough. Um, financial market will be in a difficult position to absorb all this. So we will have to look at, you know, perhaps doing something like what the Bank of Japan is doing with yield curve control and purchasing some of the debt, at least for a quite significant period of time. Um, we will have to think about this, these bonds that finance um, the corona-related spending if they're supranational. One of the reasons why governments look at it is that in that case, it doesn't add to national debt. Uh, and there will be some countries which, which wouldn't like to see their uh, national debt increase too much. Um, and then I think there will be, but perhaps more medium term, a lot of thinking about how you tax the economy, how you spend in the economy. Um, and But that will definitely come later. But if you remember, and I'm sure Jason and Kevin have a lot to say about this, there was a lot of debate prior to this crisis about wealth taxation, income taxation. And given, given the people who are bearing the blunt really of the crisis are probably the lower skill, the lower income one. I think this, this debate will come on the table. So sorry for the discretion, but I think it's, yes, part will part of this debt financing will come from central banks. We, we shouldn't fool ourselves. Um, part of this may come in Europe from, from mutual uh, bond insurance, but that's also debt. And at some stage, you know, what's handy is the central bank can also buy it. Part of it may be inflation, but the last uh, and the last chunk will be uh, taxation, and we will need to think how now to make that that good. Jason, what's your perspective on how we how we pay for this in the end? Yeah, I mean, when the United States fought World War II, it ran a deficit one year of thirty percent of GDP. Three other years, about twenty percent of GDP. You saw the debt jump from 40% of GDP to 100% of GDP. Um, I don't think this will be anywhere close uh, to that, but there is the capacity there when you're attacked um, to respond. And in the short run, there's a set of the things you can do to handle that debt, including, you know, Laurent said yield curve control. I would frame it that way, but that's effectively partially monetizing your debt. That's not what you can do over the longer term. And so I would add a fourth to Kevin's list of things. In 1946, the debt was 106% of GDP. By 1974, it was 23% of GDP. That happened despite running deficits most of the years over that period because the growth rate exceeded um, the interest rate. Now, right now, we have a lot of problems and challenges with growth, um, but interest rates are also much lower than they were back then. Um, this isn't automatically going to get our debt down as a share of the economy, but it's something that 
you know, if you can stabilize over the course of decades, and by the way, you know, stabilizing at 100% of GDP, I'd be completely comfortable um, with that, allowing it to drift above that sum. I think there's relatively little evidence that that causes a problem. Um, but there has to be some path that is um, understood. The low interest rates help on that, um, but they don't fully solve it. I was of the view before this crisis, and I continue to be of the view that um, the United States is a very tax phobic country, and we're going to need to ask for more. Um, you know, I'm in favor of high income taxes. Wealth tax isn't my favorite way of doing it, but you know, we could debate the specifics. Um, but that won't be enough. And can you go to people and say you need to more broadly pay? Um, I'm not sure because um, I'm not sure the goodwill is going to be there for that. But at some point, you know, additional revenue in a broad-based way um, is going to be needed. You won't need a huge amount of it. You don't need to run budget surpluses. You just can't have too huge a deficit five or 10 years from now um, in order to take advantage of the low interest rates and the glide path you can get yourself on. I, I, I think it's going to be hard to see envision lower taxes in, uh, after this crisis. Um, maybe maybe you can one of you wants to debate that, but you mentioned wealth taxes, Jason. I mean, it seems to me um, that one of the you know one of the big questions around this is that that we've slowed we stopped the economies around the world essentially to save it's not entirely but a cohort of the economy that is well a co cohort of the population that's older, more vulnerable. That raises questions around whether we have we're facing an intergenerational um, transfer, if you will, of wealth or of debt from one from the older generation to the younger generation. Not entirely, of course. There's lots of this. This disease does not seem to be entirely ageist in its um, in its path. But I'm just curious whether this, you know, something like a wealth tax actually is would could be designed in such a way so that you do rebalance it. Um, you rebalance these payments in some way from the um, those who have to those who don't yet have. I don't know, Kevin, what do you think about taxes? So, are you a fan, Kevin? So I don't like taxes, just as a first approximation. <laughs> it, my friend Jason loves taxes. He loved taxes before the crisis. He loves taxes in the middle of the crisis, loved taxes afterward. Doesn't think it has a big effect on behavior. So we have a different view on that. Let me let me see if I can. Which is why I bounced it straight to you, Kevin. Yeah, let, let me see. Let me see if I can answer your, answer your question a, a, a little bit more concretely. Um, we are rightfully dwelling on the crisis in which we find ourselves, and we're rightly calling it an emergency. In 2008 and 9, I think we did the same thing. We rightly called it a crisis and, and called it an emergency. I think the challenge when historians look back, what they're going to look back to is the historic interval between the last crisis and this crisis. And they're gonna ask a very uncomfortable question. Did we use the peace between the two great wars to put ourselves in a responsible position to respond to whatever shocks happen? And I must say I'm rather uncomfortable with how historians will look back at that period between the wars. We ran ourselves to the largest deficits with this low of uh, unemployment rate at full employment. We never normalized the broad conduct of monetary policy in the US and around the world. Uh, the corporate debt situation, which I would say some of my former colleagues are now uh, rightly describing as precarious, 
that didn't happen by accident, that happened as a result of government policy. So it does strike me as though there will be an appropriate time to look back on the decade between these wars and ask whether we uh, tried to answer the one salient question, what will we do if there's a shock? And that strikes me as the most important question central bankers should ever do, should, should always be asking. And instead we've treated really the last 15 years like a continuous emergency. And because of that, I think we have fewer good solutions at this moment and the scarring from this crisis could be somewhat worse than had we sort of normalized in that period between the wars. And that's a function of both the tax policy and spending policy in addition to monetary policy. Jason, what's your, I mean, just to elaborate a little bit more on. Yeah. Um, taxes. I mean, Kevin did reference deficits. The fact that tax revenue before this was 16% of GDP, the lowest it had been in 50 years outside of recessions. Um, tells me that in that respect, um, we were less prepared than we should have been. On monetary policy, I'm much more positive on the way it was handled in this period. I don't think the Fed or the ECB or the Bank of England chose lower rates. I think lower rates were imposed on them by a dramatic change um, in the structure of the economy with less businesses investing more people um, saving, and just to even keep adequate economic performance, um, they needed to have quite low rates. Had tax rates been, uh, interest rates been 6% going into this, um, do I think we'd be in better shape? No, we probably would have had even lower inflation than we had, um, even more of a risk of a deflationary spiral um, than we have right now. So I think monetary policy has been you know, the one aspect of macroeconomic policy I think has been done you know, reasonably well in the past, is going reasonably well right now. Um, and of course, nothing um, that we're talking about is remotely as important for the economy or for society as what was done on health. And that is where we certainly um, failed in our preparation in a very uh, big Laurent, way. Laurence, I, I mean, I'm just thinking, going back a little bit to the tax question, um, you were in, uh, well, in France when you were in the government, I believe, uh, the Sarkozy government. Did you have a wealth tax? And you had sort of, I'm just wondering if like, if this debate is different on the other side of the Atlantic, um, about how we might pay for things. So there are two things. One is um, the average tax to GDP ratio in OECD countries probably closer to 35% than 16 mentioned by, by Jason. Um, well, second federal, I should say, yeah, but anyway. Okay, and, and France is at the top uh, of all OECD countries uh, in terms of tax to GDP ratio. So unlike, unlike, the, unlike my US colleagues, I can say that we like taxes because we like redistribution. Uh, but also because the economy doesn't work uh, in terms of equality of opportunities. Um, but I would like to come back on this wealth tax and also um, that goes with the inheritance tax. Uh, I think there are very few countries who have them and, and the debate in France as you know, has been uh, from one government to the other. Um, it's a pendulum, right? When, once you've got it, once it disappears. Inheritance tax, death tax, is not popular anywhere. Um, wealth tax are not that popular either. And, and more than that, they usually bring little 
money in. So what matters most, I think, is to make the income tax system really progressive uh, and able to, the, to finance, among other things, the huge increase in healthcare spending will have to finance. But I would focus the debate on wealth and, and death tax, which are, in any case, bringing very little receipt. Are you, how they have to be really repressive. I mean, I also think we need to focus on the benefit side. I think that's where it's clearest. The United mm -hmm. States was one of the only countries in the world, joined by Papua New Guinea, not to have a paid leave program in place six months ago. Congress, a few weeks ago, invented a brand new paid leave program in the middle of a crisis, essentially financed by businesses on the front end and reimbursed by the government later. I'm not sure how well that's going to work. I really wish that we had had a paid leave program already in place that at least could be used as an automatic stabilizer and potentially could be um, expanded on. Sick leave was something that wasn't universal in the United States going into this. I think the idea that you would impose sick leave on companies in the middle of this is quite a big problem, but in normal times um, and have that system in place, absolutely. So. I think, uh, you know, and then state unemployment insurance systems that are operating by telephones rather than computers on paper and can't, couldn't handle the volume before all of this, and now the volume has gone up 20-fold is just another example. So I think a lot of the parts of the U.S. social safety net that we very much knew were inadequate, this is exposing the inadequacy of it, and, you know, some of the attempts to patch it up in the middle of this I think will only be partially successful, um, which will be an argument for really getting it right over the longer term. How much, so if I can ask um, Jason, the question is, how much of all these new benefits and spending do you think are gonna last beyond the crisis? Like how much uh, of this could design a US larger, larger US social safety net that, than what we have seen in the past? I think, unfortunately, the ways it's been done so far are like getting a bit of chewing gum and duct tape and taping something together. And it might be the way that makes sense to do it now, but actually isn't the way to make sense doing it um, in the longer term. So unfortunately, um, from my perspective, or fortunately, if you're Kevin and worried about creeping, I don't think you could take any of what's been passed now and just make it permanent. I think you need to do something pretty different. Um, for paid leave, sick leave, or unemployment insurance. Gina, pass to you. Yeah, yeah so, and I know we're um, starting to run uh, short on time, so I kind of wanted to ask, looking forward to everyone, and Kevin, starting off with you, just how do you see uh, a recovery playing out, and what do you think are the longer-term changes that happen in terms of whether it's on the individual level, corporate level, or government level in terms of our economic behavior, because I feel like this is, you know, none of us are going to come out of this um, the same as before. And the way we um, travel, where we think about where we want to live, where we want to work is, is all going to change. Um, how do you see that in the long term? And then, you know, the, just getting out of this uh, in the short term. So, Gene, I think it's um, it's a fair point. I 
think it, there's a tendency to think, well, if the apex of the virus is gone in 60 days, then we'll just go back to how things were. And um, with Jason's good urging of his colleagues, we'll fill aggregate demand and we'll just go back to the economy in January. I just don't think that's how it's going to work. Uh, we recall how different the landscape was, not just for banks out after the last financial crisis, and this one seems to be having a bigger imprint on society. So fundamentally, there are going to be huge changes in household consumption patterns and business patterns and global supply chains. And uh, you know, Jason and some colleagues have done some really good work over the last decade that has shown that even before this crisis, the companies and the countries that are at the frontier of productivity uh, have separated themselves from the median in their sector. The best countries have separated themselves from the median of the G20. I think those trends are likely to be continued, if not accelerated over the course of the ne next decade. The winners will be bigger winners, but the people in the middle will be stuck with fewer, fewer alternatives. So the frontier of productivity and innovation will probably be higher, but that has huge implications for the broad society. So I'd say at the micro level, the consequences are huge. And at the macro level, just to finish off, many of the trends that we've been seeing and debating over the course of the last several years, the fights between the G2, the US and China confrontations, those aren't going away. If anything, the virus looks to me to be an accelerant of those tensions. The re-regionalization, what some call deglobalization, that seems to have now been further accelerated. The push by some for wealth taxes and having the US government be a more integral part of every boardroom discussion, these trends are, are, are I think, coming closer and closer. The key to all of this is to try to define the emergency as exactly as it is. And when the emergency is over this time, unlike the emergency in 2009, we shut the door, we prepare for the next emergency, and we try to go back to a style of economic growth in the US that can ensure what Jason said at the outset, the G is greater than I and forevermore. And the only way to do that is to be very confident you're putting in the right sort of policies to have high economic growth over the next generation. Because if we don't, we're gonna end up uh, perhaps uh, in a much less strong position when the next crisis hits. And Jason, I know you've also been um, skeptical in terms of, you know, especially at least in the U.S., uh, us seeing a V-shaped recovery. How do you see things when they improve and, um, and what do you see as sort of the long-term effects of how this changes all of us? Right. So none of us have ever seen anything like this. So I don't think any of us can be confident. Um, I think the odds of a V-shaped recovery, though, I would put them relatively low. I wouldn't be surprised if five years from now we continue to have unemployment rates that are significantly elevated compared to where they were um, before this. I absolutely do not think aggregate demand is a panacea, but it is necessary. It's not sufficient, and it's something that we know how to do, so we should do that. We shouldn't mess that up. Um, and last time we didn't do quite enough aggregate demand, but figuring out how to put the pieces together of businesses of supply chains and the like, um, that's absolutely necessary too. There isn't quite a playbook um, for all of that, um, but figuring that out as we go along is important. Did want to highlight though, that as you know, worried or realistic as I am about the United States, about France, about Europe, 
um, and the like, something that Laurence briefly um, brought up earlier, when you look at poorer countries, um, when you look at emerging economies, when you look at developing economies, they're going to be very hard hit. I think we don't know anything about the magnitude of this right now because of the lack of testing in a lot of those countries. They don't have anywhere capacity that the advanced economies have. The INF has already gotten a ton of applications. It has a lot of resources now that it didn't have in the crisis. But unlike the Fed and the ECB, it doesn't have an effectively unlimited amount of resources. And then I'm worried about the patience and interest that policymakers and the public in the rich countries will have about a financial crisis happening on the other side of the world. Um, I think that worries me for the sake of those countries. And it worries me also um, for the sake of the global economy. The coordinating or correlating across the Fed and the ECB is pretty easy. They both have exactly the same situation, want to do the same thing. How you coordinate with um, the Reserve Bank of India is you know, a little bit trickier given the different positions of the two economies. And you know, we need to get this right domestically, but we're also going to need to um, make sure we're looking outward and protecting um, the global economy as well. And Laurence, how do you see things going forward in Europe? Um, so it's going to be a little difficult to add to what Kevin and Jason have said and, and to which I largely agree. Um, I would mention two things. Uh, one, one is for, for the European Union, I think it's a real test. Either um, European, European Union countries have started displaying uh, some solidarity and building up some schemes to support each other unemployment and each other spending. It has been a little slow if it, unlike, unlike what national policymakers have done. And, and I really wish that it's gonna accelerate and continue on this train because that would really help consolidate uh, the European Union, which has been a bit shaken by Brexit and by the sovereign crisis in the wake of the financial crisis. Second point is, um, like what Jason was saying, I think it, it's a crisis which is a, which we unraveled for, for months, if not years. And hopefully that will bring us to look differently at education and healthcare and also wage policy. And if we do a good job of looking at the access to education and health, uh, and also at, at, at wage policy, which started a little before this crisis, then we may, uh, if I want to end up on an optimistic note, that may actually make countries turn a little around, invest more into education and health and, and look better at wage policy so that the inequalities, which had been fueling a lot of the populism in the wake of the crisis start being reduced in a sustainable way, i.e. not only food redistribution, but really because everybody gets better chance to succeed in life. Rob, over to you. Yeah, I thought I, we, we had opened this up for, que for questions. I've got a bunch of them on the screen here through this um, platform that we're using. Let me just throw one out there. Um, it's sort of a good headline one. If the lockdown lasts for longer than a month or two, is it possible for 
uh, the global economy to fall into a depression again. Uh, Jason. I think anything's possible. I think the depression though did represent a massive um, policy failure in addition to um, all of the events. And it's just hard to see fiscal and monetary policy you know, allowing that to happen. So um, you know, a prolonged period of 15% unemployment in the United States and 25% unemployment in Spain, um, yes. A five-year period of 25% unemployment like we saw in the Great Depression. Um, I really think no matter how long the lockdown is, um, we should have the tools to be able to, to stop something like that. Kevin, um, but that you... doesn't mean there wasn't something quite bad that could happen. All right, Laurence, go. Yeah, um, I think, you know, it's unlikely that it gets like that for many, many months. Also, I, I mean, all the caveats, right, being being humble because we know little, but um, from, from, from where I sit, you know, this, lockdown may, may last you know a couple of months but then uh, that's the time initially we we wanted I mean policymakers wanted to put that in place to gain time to build up their healthcare capacity so masks ICU beds things like that we're going to get there right we're going to get there and and very gradually people will start going out. It won't be the same for months. We won't travel. We won't probably go to restaurants, but it will not be as bad as what it is today. Um, and I think it will be more, hopefully more manageable. The risk is that we get a second wave of the virus uh, in the autumn, in which case it seems to me that we will have to finance uh, the same type of support to firms and people. But, but we will be better prepared. There will be better ICU beds. And so um, I think for all we said, we, you know, even if the virus stays with us for a while without vaccines, without cure, the medicine that we're taking on now is extraordinary and, and, and is unlikely to be put in place in the same, to the same extent in the future. So we should, all that to say, we should be able to afford to put again in place the support policies if we get a second outbreak because it will have likely a smaller impact. Kevin, you're at the, uh, you teach at the institution named after the president of, who at the time had to deal with the depression and uh, may have, may, what, what are we, are you concerned that we will deal with that in some way or you, do you have the same sort of um, confidence that uh, Jason and, and Laurence do, that we have the tools and the knowledge, as it were, to avoid such a thing. So making policy is about making choices. If we make the wrong choices in the U.S. and around the world, uh, we can end up with exceptionally bad outcomes. If we make the right choices, then my judgment is the U.S. economy remains resilient, dynamic, and can respond to this shock. So there's nothing inevitable about that kind of and that, uh, that kind of outcome. I would also say that that we're even wrestling with this question of recession versus depression should make us think back how quaint the discussion was over the last several months and several years um, about whether inflation was treacherously too low, coming in at 1.7 percent instead of some vaunted target of 2.0 percent. 
whether a month ago we said the economy is in great shape and everything in the financial markets are just swell. Again, it strikes me as though we needed humility then, we need humility now. And had we dedicated our attention to asking these hard questions about tail risks, that would be right. So as a first approximation, um, Rob, Gina, and the team, if the conduct of public policy, especially at central banks, was focused on the left side of the decimal point, then we might be better positioned to handle shocks. Instead, it seems to me over the last many number of years, we've been focused the right side of the decimal point, and we've been foregoing our humility with a little bit of judgment that somehow the great moderation was back. The great moderation um, left us with very bad alternatives in 2008, I worry that we've treated the decade since uh, as if we didn't internalize the lessons of a decade ago. So I end up in the camp, I think, where my fellow panelists are, which is quite skeptical of some V-shaped recovery. And the ultimate contour, whether it's a W or something else, depends largely on the conduct of policy, because the underlying foundations, at least of the U.S. economy, remain strong. But if we let the wolf in the door, then those foundations themselves can weaken. But I think cooler heads will prevail. The strength of the economy will be because of them, not because of the likes of public officials like us. And we'll come out of this better, stronger, and faster. But we've got to make the right decisions over the next several months and several years in order for that to become uh, true. I'm going to ask one last question, and then we're going to close it here. Um, this is so also from the um, crowdsourced. Uh, what are the problems we're we are storing up as a result of what's being done to fight the crisis as best as policymakers can? Is it inflation? Is it something else? What do we have to, to worry about? And we sort of hit this already a bit, but if you had a lightning round, what would it be? I'll start with you, Laurence. Uh, 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 tricky question. So the thing we've left out, right? Um, I mean, I think we haven't talked enough about it, and, and Jason reminded me of that. We haven't talked uh, enough about how interconnected to the South and the hemisphere and the rest of the world we are. We've been very um, focused on the US and, and, and advanced OECD countries, but really what worries me the most actually is that this pandemic um, doesn't get um, doesn't get addressed properly by emerging in emerging markets uh, in, in you know big countries like India or uh, other Latin America countries or Africa. Um, it worries me a lot for themselves. It worries me a lot because it will mean that uh, also the world will only half operate. Um, and it will change very profoundly the way that we do business. It will cut uh, value chain as well. It will, um, it will be also hard for emerging market economies and, and developing economies who really rely on globalization and their link with the developed world uh, to actually catch up. So I think that's, that's the main thing to me that, that we should be focusing on a lot more. Jason? I think now is not a time to be overly worried about you know, what comes after. I wouldn't worry too much about debt inflation, the markets aren't expecting it. I think it's certainly possible. The idea of inflation in 2010 was ludicrous when some people were warning about that. Now it's a real possibility. And if it happens, I'll be thrilled because it would indicate we got a lot of demand. 
It would help lower real interest rates. It would help lower real wages. All of that would help the growth of the economy and its recovery um, ultimately. So I just think policy needs to do what it needs to do in the short run. And there definitely will be some messes we're gonna need to clean up later, but um, you know, we're, 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 we're facing an existential we're crisis. Right now. We are, uh, Jason, oh, sorry, Kevin, you wanna close it off? Sure, right, listen, I think, I think Jason uh, said this part right, which is we're in the middle of this war we need to fight for a clear victory on all fronts. Um, there was time to be sort of thinking about these risks. That time is gone. We need to address the emergency. And when the emergency is over, we need to call it. Um, I think Jason's got a lot of really good scholarship behind his points. But I would say I wouldn't be so comforted if we found ourselves in 12 months with higher inflation. Uh, if in fact, what we've done is we've created two economies, one where uh, those that are working are seeing a huge escalation in wages to keep them working. And those that are on the sidelines um, uh, uh, aren't being brought back into the labor force. I think there's reasons to believe that, um, that uh, higher inflation would not be an unavoidably good thing 12 months from now. Well, good. On that note, um, I, I want to thank all of you, uh, Laurence in Paris, Jason in the great state of Connecticut, Kevin in Florida, and Gina in the Golden State. And I'm signing off from Zurich, Switzerland. Uh, thank you. This is an illuminating conversation. I think we hit a lot of interesting things. I, I, I agree. Um, our next, the next one of these is going to have to, uh, we're going to have to think about India and Africa, Latin America, and the other parts of the world um, as well. That's it for now. Hope you enjoyed the discussion. This podcast was produced by Freddie Joyner and Paula Gill Rodriguez. If you haven't already done so, please sign up on iTunes and anywhere else you satisfy your audio cravings, The Exchange, The Views Rooms, and other Reuters podcasts. You can also check us out at BreakingViews.com and on Twitter at BreakingViews and at Rob Wancox. Thanks for tuning in and Avita Sutton.